Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening again to the Reality 2.0 podcast. I'm Catherine Druckmann. Uh, joining me today is Doc Searles, as usual. Um, Doc really needs no introduction by now, but Don Norman, our guest, probably does. And I'm going to pass it to to Doc to do that. Although, frankly, if you don't know who Don Norman is, who are you? Yeah, I think if you're in tech, chances are you have some number of books by Don. Um, uh, he's been writing and thinking about um, uh, usability and before that psychology. And um, uh, I mean, it, the, I, was, I was thinking today that nobody should have more to say about the internet of things than the guy who's done the best job of describing how things ought to work. And the internet of things has come along, you know, like decades after Don's wisdom first uh, was circulating in the world. Um, uh, he's a great authority on, on, uh, on, on, on metaphor and on, on linguistics and uh, lots of other uh, topics. Um, uh, design is probably the thing he's best known for. Um, and he's currently headquartered in, in San Diego, where he's been at UCSD for a long time, though he's been at other uh, major universities. Um, and I, I, I wanted to get Don on here because um, I think we're at, we, we're at a really interesting time. Um, you know, not because I, this is a, a feeling that I have, and I'd like to just get your thoughts on it, Don, that, that a lot of the, um, it, it's like usability and design are sort of a catastrophe in some ways right now. Um, we have an enormous amount of centralization that we don't understand um, what's in the cloud and what's not. Like Apple, for example, I can't tell what's in the cloud and what's not, how much I control and how much I don't. Uh, you talked about putting people at the center of design, and I feel like people are, are at the center of corporate intent, but they're not really driving design to a significant extent. Significant so. Just want to kind of get your thoughts on that. <laughs> sure. And I probably didn't anyway, do it as well as I had intended to when I was practicing it. So. Thanks, Doc. Thanks, Catherine. Um, get my thoughts on that. But that, <clears throat> well, you know, I could give a course on that and I probably <laughs> wouldn't cover everything. Um, the... Uh, I do have a benign view of the evil that has happened that um, I'm not in favor of what the large corporations are doing with our data, but I actually have, a, I have a belief that it snuck up on them without their in intention to do any harm. In fact, they thought they were doing good. And I can give that little story as well. Mm. Um, and you also said that people really are confused about it. Where is our data? Where, is, where are we talking to? Is it the internet? Is it whatever that is? Is it my computer? Is it the cloud? I personally think that that's the wrong question to ask. Mm -hmm. that, in fact, I wrote this book called The Invisible Computer where I argued that I, the I was trying to find that today because that, that was in the late 90s and I, I feel like we have that now in a way. Yes, but I, the whole point I made is that you shouldn't have to know about the technology. It should just work. And so the same with the cloud business. The cloud is just a different computer someplace not on your premise. And um, that if it worked well, it would be actually a real advantage to everybody. And the, the difficulties are not because it's the cloud. The difficulties are because of the way it's implemented and also the service agreements that we 
that we sign away without understanding them. Uh, they're deliberately designed so that they're not understandable. And, um, but, it, but the cloud has lots of virtues in the sense that, well, even when I go from my computer in the dining room to my computer here in my study at home or my computer in my office or as I travel, everything I do is available to me. If I start a letter and stop halfway through, and when I'm on the airplane, I can, with a completely different computer, I can pick it up at that exact same spot. Wonderful. Um, so I, I'm, not a, I'm not against the cloud, I'm for the cloud. But I am against the kinds of problems that you are so well known for in pointing out to us. But I really believe it has nothing to do with the technology. It has to do with the corporate policies that have emerged. Now, the corporate policies emerged. There, there are two or three problems. Let's just start with the simple one about the Internet of Things. Um, one of the major problems of the Internet of Things is simply that each is a little thing. And each one is designed by some product manager and a little team, and they do it. And then someone does this other thing, and this other thing, and this other thing. They don't ever think of it as a system. In fact, the business models that they have make it difficult to do that. And on top of that, they're not world authorities on security or uh, even how to deal with people or how to interact with people. And a result, each one is different. Each one can be irritating and frustrating. And it's not for benign, it's not for evil reasons. It's just that a, a small group of people do this neat thing. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, the end is, is chaos. Look, I was just, I spent a lot of time in healthcare and I've spent um, two weeks ago, I spent a couple of days at Philips in the Netherlands, and, and I came back and spent some time with our people here at the University of California's uh, health system. And one of the things we were talking about is how chaotic an operating room, or for that matter, the patient's room, or in fact, it's Philips, they were concerned about uh, prenatal care. And all of these have the same issues. When you walk into the operating room, or you walk into the emergency ward, or you walk into a patient's room, what do you hear? Beep, 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 oh, beep. Yeah. And, and all the different pieces of equipment have little alarms. In fact, they're, they're regulated, they're required by, I don't know if it's by law, but by all agreements that when the condition reaches some point, you're supposed to set an alarm. And what kind of alarms do they have? Well, it's the cheapest alarm you can get, which is a beep sound. <laughs> and so everything is beeping. and and the notion that you have an alarm when something exceeds a threshold is horrible. What you ought to be doing is you ought to have a way of knowing kind of how things are going. And so you begin to see something's getting moving towards a dangerous point before it gets there, mm -hmm. not after it gets there. And you're talking about the medical practitioner. Every piece of equipment, think of the Internet of Things, that's what the hospital equipment is. It's every piece is done by a different company. And even within the same company by a different product group, which has different standards, and they don't talk to each other, they don't collaborate. And so everyone is ringing its own bells and alarms. The result is when something bad happens, all the alarms go off. And instead of taking care of the patient, people spend time turning off the alarm so they can think. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. that's, I really think that's in some sense a model of what happened to the internet that it's this um, undesirable and unplanned 
um, chaos that happens when many, many different people do very, very different things in a system that was never designed for this. Because if you remember back in the early days, <coughs> the ARPANET, and uh, how it was really just a way for people to communicate with each other and actually to share computer time because computers were so expensive. We only wanted a few computers in the whole country, but people from a distance could use it. Yeah. And yeah. that soon, and we didn't even have email, but people invented a, a chat like facility, I guess it was called talk and um, email came. And then Look, I remember the early days I was at San Diego typing a paper that I was writing with a friend at MIT and I was using the MIT computer and the computer center director came to me and said I had to stop that that was an expensive waste, a horrible yeah. waste of expensive computer time. But every time I typed a character, he said that had to go all the way across the country to MIT which would then repeat it and send it back so that my computer knew it got received properly. And do you know how expensive that is? He said, we should stop doing it. I, I've since learned, by the way, that when I find people doing things that I think are wasteful or not what we intended, I should take that as a, sing as a signal. Hey, mm. this is an activity that really is valuable to people. So instead of prohibiting it, and I should try to figure out how to make it usable and affordable and proper. But what I'm getting at, well, let me continue the story. First of all, the we had no security built into the early computers. Um, I remember at UC San Diego, a student once broke in and did some damage. And there was a big cry from around the country about how we should punish the student. And I said, no, I'll talk to him. And that's what I did. I went to him and I said, hey, we don't do things that way. <laughs> yeah, Can you yeah. imagine doing that today? But we had no thought that people did, he wasn't evil, he was just having fun. Yeah. But, but we never even considered that there'd be troublemakers and worse, evil people out there. And, and people who do fake things, right? So, you know, back off to um, the companies, like the, the most particular ones are uh, Facebook and Google. But I know how Google started, because I know, even know when it started. I knew the, the two kids at Stanford who started it uh, before Eric Schmidt knew about it, in fact. And uh, they had this really neat search. And it was free, and it was wonderful. But as it got bigger and bigger, it got more and more expensive to run. So how are you going to pay for it? And they had no idea of how to pay for it. No idea what the business model is. And they did discover advertising, but let me also point out, it wasn't considered evil, it was considered a good thing. What we teach our business students is, the more you know about the customer, the better you can serve your customer. You can give them the things they are interested in. You don't have to bother them with things you know they're not interested in. It's good business. Mm -hmm. uh, we, had, we had case studies we used to teach people. I taught uh, business students when I was at Northwestern, the Kellogg Business School. I used case studies about hotels that kept good track of their customers so that when they came back, they got their favorite pillows and their favorite drinks and, they, and maybe their clocks would already be set for the proper time to wake them up. These are the luxury hotels. And, you know, there's even, they even had a favorite quote from a Harvard Business Review case that in a good hotel, if the, whatever the customer wants, they can get. In a great hotel, they don't even have to ask. Mm -hmm. Well, you do that by knowing a lot about your customer. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what Google discovered it could do. Now, it got out of hand. Yeah, and we're not their customer. You know, customer of the advertisers. And there was a little so disconnect. They, they, we were, they, at first, I believe that they thought of us as a customer. Oh, well, that may be the case. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but the, but the point is, the, the point is it evolved from very simple steps that seemed friendly, that seemed sensible, that seemed actually in everybody's best interests. It, it then was, it became a cancer that spread and started destroying all that we care about. <laughs> I really do think it was benign in, at first. Yeah. And, um, now the problem is how do we stop it? How do we control it? And as you know, because I know you've been working on this problem, that's really hard. Yeah, and who are we in that case either? I mean, there, there are lots of different actors. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people are wanting to call in government to do it. You know, let's break them up, a whole bunch of other things I think are wrong, actually. Um, so uh, I, I know Catherine has a problem. Breaking them up won't solve the problem. Because no. I think the fundamental problem is the use of advertisement as your source of income. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I would agree with that. Uh, that You're talking about all these different small groups developing the internet of things. There's something similar to that happening with, um, and, I'm, and of course I'm working on a solution to this, but it's not like I have it yet or that I'm the only one, but I want to get your thoughts on this, that um, we have, right now every single website wants you to accept their terms and to accept their conditions and uh, twitter the other day was telling everybody we're going to come up with new privacy policy and a new uh terms of service and i clocked them they're both well over ten thousand words nobody's going to read these things um wouldn't it be easier wouldn't it be better and i'm thinking all of those different outfits may think they're being customer centric uh, in their design, but the fact that all of them are doing it differently makes it customer hostile, makes it user hostile. And I think that the best approach to that is you make something that's actually customer driven where the customer has a role in it. If we all have our own terms that we can bring to these different sites and say, these are really pretty simple and straightforward. Here's what privacy looks like to me, agree here and we just carry on with business. And I'm wondering if people being involved in design like that is something where people like me are like over our heads or pissing in the wind or actually onto something. Yes, you are. (laughs) I think, I mean, first of all, these issues, I don't really have to explain it to you. <laughs> well, we have, we have listeners here, so explain it to them. They're incredibly complex. I mean, look, nowadays I get in almost every website I go, a little box, several boxes come up. Yeah. We use cookies. Uh, and, uh, and that's, by the way, that's, that's what happens when you regulate things. So the Europeans decided to regulate, and you have to tell you you use cookies. Okay, you tell me you use cookies, but what am I supposed to do? Yeah. What it really mean? And they do it. Some, some of them even say, we'll explain to you what it means if you click this button here and you'll go into this 500 word essay or, <laughs> you know, or whatever, or the rules that we use. It's by the way, um, one of the things you agree to is that we can change it at any moment. That we <laughs> it's like this so pointless. <laughs> but, um, 
but the you know the Europeans said we want to let you do this, so it's it's nothing but another nuisance getting in the way of doing things. Yeah. And then uh, there's another box that says so and so would like to know your location, allow yeah. or block. And I I block all of them until I see oh well actually this is my mapping application you I need to allow that one yeah or oh no I'm trying to buy something that's relevant and it's relevant that I'm in California so I say yes but I I can't turn it off I say for this one time I'd like them to know but now you could you could imagine oh well they could just have a little box this one time only or until you say no or whatever. But every little extra choice <laughs> makes our lives more frustrating. And the more choices we have, which a, a citizen panel will tell you how they want all those choices. Because that way they can tell her. But in real life, once they get on board, they're going to say the hell with it. And they're just going to do whatever the easiest way to proceed is. And, and I, it's, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm saying, though, this is one of the difficulties we have to face. What we really want is we want the default to be, we, we figure out a statement that is sort of a, the ideal case for people being in charge of their own life, which includes their own data and simplifying the interaction with their system. Yeah. That's the default. And maybe it restricts a lot of the things they wish to do. Right, I think that's gonna have to happen. And then oh, as they got, yeah. want to do more things, then they may actually have to say, well, in this case, yeah, you can use my data. or well, in this case, I'm willing to pay you money. Or... Yeah. You know, and Apple um, on iOS has, uh, you know, they're giving this new choice, which is um, share location data all the time, only when the app is open or uh, not at all. And, and I actually had it pretty much toned down all the way. And, I've, and I looked at Google Maps and my history with Google Maps, which goes back a very long time, uh, says I've been in 65 places in my life. <laughs> and that's it, you know. And in a way, that's not that useful to me if I wanted to use that, if I wanted to look at history. I have other ways of doing that. Um, but that's sort of an interesting, that's an interesting thing. I don't think it's easy to work out. But what I discovered, because I, I was setting it as, well, when I'm using the app, then I, you need to know my location. Yeah, exactly. That's, how, that's the correct thing. Well, it turned out that doesn't work on lots of things. Uh, really? My watch was no longer keeping time. And uh, oh, wow. I have the watch app turned on. Well, but in the background, the watch was syncing with the app. And so there were, it turned out there were lots of different things that didn't work if you said only when the app is running. It, it, is this the Sony watch that you threw at the wall like two years ago or something? <laughs> and, and I say about no, actually, that. It's a Fitbit. Oh, it's a Fitbit. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have an Apple watch now. And actually, it's incredibly handy. And and has uh, some health benefits as well. So Catherine, I know we were talking before Don came on. So yeah. Questions um, well, actually, so Don just mentioned this, this, you know, this idea that our lives are increasingly complex and that's something I've been thinking about. So I've, I've actually been reading your book, uh, Living with Complexity, because I think it's, well, I think it should be required reading for anybody who does the kind of work that I do, which is, you know, with software and whatnot, but, um, uh, I was thinking just in terms of the conversations I've had with Doc and with other people who have been guests about how much we as humans are willing to give up in terms of our data and our privacy just for convenience and, and usability and ease of use. And the fact that, as you say, all of the, these permissions and, and, and um, 
confirmations and messages and pop-ups and cookies and all of these things have made everything so complex. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts on how we could take control back a bit as users or designers on our behalf, or, you know, what, what, what would need to happen before we would be willing to say, to say, no, I'm not giving this up in the interest of convenience. And, and maybe there's not ham-handed regulation either, you know. That's... Right, right. I mean, it, it just seems to me that it, here's an, a good example is, is the stuff that we talked about just now with the phones. But another good example is I have a ring doorbell. And I'm ashamed that I have a ring doorbell because every day I read something more horrifying about ring doorbells. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm looking for, you know, an alternative. And I, but I, I keep coming down to the ease of use. It has the exact functionality that I need. Um, you know, and I'm on the hunt for a replacement, but it's, it's a very frustrating uh, The difficulty is a lot of the things that uh, could us harm have real value, and the ring doorbell is an example. But wouldn't it be nice if um, it would only have the features you want? Yes. <clears throat> I presume one of the, there are two, thing, two things that people like about the doorbell like that, which is um, if somebody rings a doorbell and they're in some other part of the house, they can see who it is. Or second, if they're having package delivered or other things, they can yeah. tell. Now, those all seem like innocuous, but they seem like they'd be very nice. But it'd be nice if you could, if that information was only visible to you. Yes. But as soon be. as it goes on Wi-Fi, which is actually what makes it easier for you, so any any computer in your home can pick it up. Oops, it could be out to the world. And so I don't know what other issues are with Ring. I, I don't have one, so I haven't been following it. But I suspect many of them are not necessary. Yeah, like, like watching the sidewalk in front at all times is one of them. Right. Well, what, one of the... to walk, uh, walk in front of somebody's house that's got a Ring doorbell because they don't want to be spied on. There are, there are um, let's say, civil rights concerns because there, there is a relationship between... Ring doorbell, which is owned by Amazon, and a lot of police departments. And there's concern that police have very easy access, whether the, the owners of the doorbells give consent or not. Um, and there is an, additionally a feature that allows you to report incidents of whatever kind to your neighbors. So within a certain radius of, of, of your house, for example, you can see all of the shady goings on. Um, but it tends to bring out the worst in, in people in, in that they're sharing, well, this, this person of color looks suspicious and was walking by my house. And that, that is a concern, I think, to a lot of people. And, and, and I think rightly so. And, but yeah, like you say, those, those are not features that I want or need. I just, but, the, but it, you know, it comes with the package. Well, it doesn't have to come with the package. It has a lot to do with how you, what its range is, how you place it etc but that's yes that you can't but I, I was just thinking as you told the story it, since what my wife and i relax to a lot is watching streaming detective stories hmm. and after the crime or after the report the first question is so where are the cctv cameras they still still call hmm. tv which is interesting and so they all look around and they say ah and or they say, oh, we'll never catch the person. There's no cameras. Oh, the <laughs> so it's interesting that they have, and not unreasonably, they are pointing out that these cameras are of great value to crime prevention. Actually, right. it's not 
prime convention, it's prime detection afterwards. Um, the police are not, in fact, good at prevention. That's not their job. Their job is to catch you after you've created, done a crime. But these cameras are valuable for that. But yeah, as soon as you say, but the cameras are valuable, then you're in the police state, like like the UK, if, for example. The UK is, yeah. Or Russia, or yeah. for that matter, Manhattan. Yeah, I, I know people in uh, in the UK who actually put up fake CCTV cameras in order to make their streets safer, <laughs> which is an interesting. Oh no, we've done that for years. Oh really? You can buy false alarm cards. You can put a sign up in your house saying this is protected. Right? Yeah, we see that a lot anyway. And, and, and there are there are dogs that will. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Beware of dogs. Bark. <laughs> they have a recorded bark, which. And, uh, <laughs> No. Well, police have long done that. They park an empty patrol car on the street and people drive more slowly. Now, some of that is, is not bad. I mean, it's... Mm-hmm. Right. That, yeah. That's why it's so complex. It's, it's, right. it's a whole, it has to do with human beings and we are all complex. Yeah. For I, I, me, it's I, just, it's easier to just go ahead and use the thing that I find potentially evil. <laughs> And, and, and that, you know, that kind of... Well, a common view that people have is, I understand all that you're saying and all the complaints you have, but I don't do anything I'm ashamed of. And so I, I'm not going to worry about it because I'm, I do, I'm a good person. Yeah. Every is all the people get caught and trapped uh, and accused of doing things which they did not do. Uh, and then they worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that the definition of what, what one should be ashamed of is constantly changing. There's that. And then there's also the fact that everyone, I think, at some level that has something that they want to keep completely private. That's another conversation we've had many times. Uh, Kyle always brings up, Kyle Rankin, who is a frequent guest, always brings up health information. Health information is something that almost every person wants to, wants to keep private. And, and that's, that's one of those areas where people... I think, push back a little bit more on, on data privacy. There's a secondary aspect of health information is um, <clears throat> insurance costs are a function of your health. And uh, yeah, yeah. so there's one thing is that people are just ashamed of letting other people know about some of the health thing problems they have. But another one is it may cost them a tremendous amount of money. Yes, absolutely. Right, right. There's, there's also, you know, you know um, my friend, um, Bryn, uh, David Bryn, a science fiction author. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 He wrote the book, the transparent society in which he said, the way do we overcome the problems of everybody knowing what you're doing is say, okay, everybody knows what you're doing. Let's yeah. make, make that the standard. However, let's, it has to be two way. The police know everything I'm doing. I want to know everything the police are doing. Yeah. So everybody has to reveal what they're doing. And that's what he means by transparency. It goes in both directions. And that may be impossible ever to happen, but it's it's one intelligent direction of a solution, I think. That a lot of things we're trying to keep secret. Why are they being kept secret? It's because of the way society works and will shame us, not because it's illegal. And uh, but then a lot of the things that the police and others do um, may actually be to our benefit, 
but we know they go overboard and they do things that are not. Yeah, the, the body cams on, on police now is an example of the transparent society at work. Yeah. We know a lot more about how police are operating. You know, Interesting. there was the case of a of a police officer who was just fired because his body cam caught him um, fondling the breasts of the corpse, you know, uh, which is deeply weird. But there it was, you know, uh, but but this kind of thing happens. So so, Catherine, before we came on with Don, you were talking, you were asking me about Don's experience with Apple and with um HP and so forth in, in the very old days. Uh, Don, you were at Apple in between Steve, as I recall. I say between jobs. Between, between jobs. jobs. Oh, funny. <laughs> That's much better. <laughs> um, I mean, in, in retrospect, looking back across all that time, are, are, are you encouraged, discouraged, full of fresh learnings or, or, or what? How do you look back across that I, one of the things I remember specifically is in August of two, 1996, I think you were just in the process of you just left Apple and gone to HP and you talked about how Apple hates its customers <laughs> and, and, at that time. Uh, Actually, yeah, that, that, that would have been maybe 97, but it doesn't matter. That's yeah. the way to matter. Um, yeah, it, it's always been interesting, Apple's business model, and, they, and I think it's kind of still true that they don't give, they don't treat their, they, they don't, it isn't that they hate their customers, but they, it, they feel they can take them for granted. And the more that Apple is religion, the more that this is true. Mm. Uh, no matter what we do, our customers are loyal to us. And so they spent a lot of time trying to attract new customers and they would give them all sorts of bonuses and good things to sign up, but they would never do anything for their existing ones. And I, I found it interesting that Microsoft was always just the opposite. Uh, Microsoft went out of its way to support its customers and do good things for its customers and also treat the developers very, very well. Yeah, that was something I had an advantage with. And uh, Amazon's a good example, too. Amazon doesn't treat its employees very well, but they treat its customers incredibly well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have, I have solved problems with them. I think one of the things that... I get, get your thoughts about this. Do you think Apple succeeds in part because they do have the stores? I mean, stores came along really this millennium, um, but we're pretty, I mean, I, now I can carry my broken thing into human beings who take note of what happened to them. I can name at least two occasions where they've told me, we haven't seen this before. We're writing it down. We're going to let headquarters know this happened. Um, and that's, that's a heuristic for the company that I don't think they had before having face-to-face -face interactions. No, uh, I could, cause I can remember <laughs> when I was a vice president wandering about in stores and the apples there were, a lot of them were in, in rebooting or only halfway through or, or dead. Yeah. So I would go and reboot all of them and get them into good working order. Oh my God. <laughs> people working wow. in the stores weren't doing it. And, uh, yeah. We had nobody who really did that. I think the Apple Store was a brilliant invention and done well. There's some issues with it, mainly the way they treat, like the uh, Genius Bar people are not very well paid. Mm. You'd think yeah. they would be the best paid or something because they're the main yeah, uh, yeah. assistants. But um, 
Yeah, I think Apple, of course, Apple has changed over the years in many, many ways. Um, and Apple right now is in the middle. I don't think Apple knows where, what kind of a company it is today. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good point. It's an interesting question. I, um, I, uh, you well, know, it's a I media have, company for sure. Yeah, well, that's, that's what everybody wants to be. Everybody wants a share of the spend that people have before we reach peak subscription. Right. But the point is that Apple's claim to fame has always been, in fact, it's, it's its motto, is that it doesn't do what everybody else does. It does something that's different, but that's of value. Yeah. Apple now copying what everybody else does seems like it's an act of desperation. Yeah. 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 What well, Apple I've... seems to be really good at is hiding its financial uh, across the countries of the world. Yeah, you know, they're very good at that. Uh, it's... Well, I, I, something we have also talked about <laughs> is the peak of Apple's hardware seems to have been about five years ago, <laughs> or that's the consensus among a lot of, like, you know, power on, on uh, MacBook side. Pro users. Yeah, on the hardware front. Um, then, well, you know, it, when you actually look at it, um, Apple still is a consumer company. Right. And if you look at HP, uh, it's actually an enterprise company. Yeah, yeah. And so their computers are better in many ways, but more expensive and more, because they're more powerful. Uh, Apple isn't trying to do the most powerful computers. Uh, so it, the, the most powerful ones tend to be PCs, mainly because you know a game company can decide to make their own computers and the only ones you can make are PCs. Right, yeah. Yeah, my... my... My, my youngest son has a homebrew Windows machine that does games, you know, and he plays with his friends across the country. Um, it's not a big thing for him, but he was very happy and proud that he could build his own computer, and there was no way to do that. It's a Mac. It's interesting. The one, one place Apple has not done is, uh, is game machines. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of surprising, considering. I mean, how big a market it is now they... Well, not only that, but game machines are the most powerful ways of doing Bitcoin and doing all sorts of graphics. Yeah, products. yeah, yeah. Was, was Johnny Ive there when yeah. you were there? I worked a lot with Johnny. So, so they, he just left. And, and I'm wondering the degree to which, like I, I'm talking to you over, um, I guess would have, been, would have been his last laptop, the current, the current generation before the ones they just announced that have the good keyboards, some mm-hmm. other things. And I really freaking hate it. And and the nothing but USB C ports and they took away the SD card reader, they got rid of the MagSafe connector, which means if you trip over it, you can pull the computer down again. And and I don't know whether Johnny was involved in that or not. Um, I'm just having well, worked with him. Comment on what I consider the virtues and the def, def, deficiencies in Johnny Ive. I think he is a brilliant industrial designer. He makes wonderful products. They're beautiful, sleek, um, strong, but he's not an expert in human behavior. Mm. Now, um, and I think that's been one of the failings of Apple has been uh, the the designs of the screens are difficult to read, difficult to remember, no no hints of how to use it, um, and other kinds of problems. But, and the interaction design is starting to go bad. But um, 
the kind of problems you mentioned are different. I'll, I'll defend Apple. Apple has always been at the forefront of a new technology. They, mm -hmm. they, got us, they went away yeah, from the big disks yeah. to floppy disks. They got rid of the floppy disks. They, they added CD-ROMs. They got rid of CD-ROMs. Uh, and so USB-C, for example, in my opinion, is a great advance. It is great. I, I appreciate it. I mean, I'm... And it's I'm a real transition. Yeah. But someday everything will be a USB, and, and then actually that will simplify your life dramatically. Yeah. And the same with some of the other things that you're complaining about. I think it's simplifying life. But, but Apple made mistakes along the way. For example, the first time they used the USB-C, they just put one in. Just one? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Choice. You, can either put, you can either deliver power or you can connect it to a display. You can't do both. Yeah, yeah. Unless you buy our extra cost dongle. Um, you know what? What's funny though? So we, you know, we talked about the 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 MacBooks and and thing the changes, uh, ports and whatnot. But there is something I feel like we could have an entire episode just talking about the Touch Bar. <laughs> it's so people are so passionate in the arguments around the addition of this Touch Bar. I don't have one. I have an you know an older an older model. I've, well, I've I'll never tell used you about it. Touch Bar, um, and, and I'll tell you about keyboards. The keyboards, by the way that we know how to make really good keyboards that people are really good at typing on and that gives them the right feedback and is the right size and so on. But in this haste to make everything thin, they invented this clever little mechanical mechanism for the new keyboard that's a disgrace. The butterfly. It's very clever, but it's horrible to type on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they abandoned it in the newer version. The newer version, they got rid of it. You'd think that people would realize it, how well you can type is a really important characteristic of a keyboard. But no, it was how thin you can make things that was a, what was of great importance. And that's a mistake. The reason our cell phones die prematurely is thinness. If you made a cell phone just a couple of millimeters thicker, the battery would be much more powerful and it would last longer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, it's got to be thin. So um, <laughs> I'm sorry, Catherine, I missed the point I was going to respond oh. to what you said. Oh, the, the touch bar. <laughs> well, actually, no, the touch bar is a different issue. I think the touch bar is clever and could potentially be useful. It isn't. <laughs> that it's a that waste. seems to be the consensus. It's a waste. But um, I don't mind if somebody has a really neat idea and the first time they do it badly, if they keep improving it. But Apple hasn't done that. Well, they, they did get, they did bring back in the latest version, the escape key. They uh -huh. buried the escape key inside the, 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 the physical escape key. And now they took it out again. And they also enlarged the distance between the keys and they returned to the inverted T for the directional keys, you know, right, left, up, down. They pushed them all together so you couldn't tell by feel whether you're going one direction or the other. All the attempts to, to keep the size down. Yeah. Yeah. Mistake. yeah. yeah. Now, there yeah. are lots of things that have gone wrong. Um, Apple finally got rid of the print screen button. <laughs> I'm looking at my Apple keyboard, but, but <laughs> Microsoft has it. And I remember keeping asking people, what is this button for? What does it do? And so yeah. nobody knew, but that's the way it was. <laughs> But like you say, I mean, you know, you'll ne you'll never find the right answer. Well, I mean, maybe you'll get lucky, but it's it's a better path to the right answer is making a lot of mistakes. Yeah, I mean, look, Microsoft, for all that we love or don't love, 
is famous for um, being right the third time around. Yeah, yeah. But but Apple, I when I was at Apple, I was really unhappy with Apple because they would bring out a new product that had lots of flaws, but also had lots of wonderful points in it. But because it had flaws and it didn't succeed well, it was damned. And anybody who worked on it was oh. damned. They would not even admit they worked on it. And so they wouldn't say, look at all these wonderful features that we didn't implement as well as we could have. We can now do better. Nope, they were all thrown away. Yeah, so the, the iteration was lost. Iterated because Apple prided you on being... Well, here's a, one of my friends, uh, Larry Kessler, whom you may know. Oh, yeah, sure. He, he pointed out Apple's philosophy that if your product, your, the product team is like a year late and horrible overruns of cost and time, and then they finally decide we've got to take care of this. And so they, they spend the next month full time. They sleep on the floor. They work 24 hours a day, et cetera, et cetera. And they finally bring the product out. There's a big celebration. You send all the team off to Hawaii for a vacation. It's wonderful. Now there's another product team doing something just as complex, but they actually, they brought it in on time, on schedule. Uh, with, uh, <laughs> they don't go to Hawaii. And that's right. Nobody celebrates them. <laughs> Do you think it's still like that? It's probably too hard to tell. I don't know. Larry's long gone, I guess, by now. Yeah, but... Uh, there's sort of there is this sort of hero complex that happens, and you can't be a hero unless you have a problem to overcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's how stories work. Stories are about conflict, right? You have character with conflict, and if you have somebody who's not that strong a character and there's no conflict, nobody cares, right? It just happened, and it was good. Um, I don't know if I can get us to a couple. I was just some notes here. Um, one was, you know, just a, probably an impossible question, which is, will we ever get to a fully symbiotic relationship between people and tech? Because that's been a theme of yours for some time. Where I think we have it in some domains. Mm -hmm. we, um, in some sense, even the video conference we're doing now. Uh, yeah. It's, real, it's working smoothly. It's doing what it's supposed to do. And it's, it's amazing because video telephone, Right. For years and years and years, and it was never successful. And people finally, I've, I've had many people explain to me that it will never, ever work because people don't like to see the other person they're talking to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had someone explain to me how that's, they were embarrassed that they might be in their bathroom or who knows what. And yeah. <laughs> no, they're not needed an easy to use. I have no pants on right now. <laughs> but there are lots of other things where uh, we're, the problem is the things that we take for granted that work so well at this great symbiotic relationship, we don't mm. even know. It's, that's interesting. I, I mean, the uh, long ago, one of the things I, I noted was that, you know, progress is the process by which the miraculous becomes mundane, right? We, we take for granted. I mean, one of the things Joyce, uh, my wife, uh, talks about is that we have this thing in our midst, the internet, for which you know, a place of no distance. We're here we are. We're in San Diego, Santa Barbara, and Houston, but we could be anywhere. And there's no distance and there's no gravity. There's no there there. You know, we're either present or not. And this is, on the one hand, this is totally familiar to us. And on the other, it's completely new to human experience, at least in the fullness of time. This is not, um, this is not something that we were designed for when we came down out of the trees 
you know, wherever it was, you know, but, but we've adapted to it. And, and what we were designed for was conversation. Yeah. Yeah. One reason why, even when you describe it that way, it seems so really miraculous and strange, but when you describe it as, Hey, three people got together and had a conversation. (laughs) Yeah. That what's special about that. Yeah. Well, yeah, that one person's in the Southwest and one person's in middle of California, one person's Southern California. Well, yeah, you put it that way, but it's a conversation. And yeah. that's, where the te- that's where the technology works well. When we can yeah. say it's a conversation among us. Yeah. We don't even have to know where the other people are. I didn't know until you just told me. Right, yeah, yeah. I've noticed that we check in with each other generally less and less on this stuff uh, when we're doing something like this. Uh, earlier on, we would say, where are you? Is it raining there? What's going on outside? You know and now the one thing that we check out often is when there are time zone differences, just ridiculous time zone differences. You have somebody in India and somebody in Berlin and somebody in somewhere else. But if, for something like this, we're only two time zones apart. And it, but I am enjoying the view of your sunny windows. <laughs> Mine is, as you'll <laughs> see, it's pitch <laughs> black. There you go. And I'm not that far away. Right. That's the sun where you are. Actually, I'm not in my room where you could see that. <laughs> I'm admiring the fact that Don still has his hair. <laughs> it might all burned off so, a, a few years well, ago. But, I did have another question, actually, and it's, it's oh. just because we've talked about it before. Um, and as I was, re- you know, reading, you talk about passwords and security and what a kind of a com- complex nightmare it can it can turn into. How do you feel about password managers? Does that solve a problem, or does that no, make everyone more miserable? No, I, I like, I use password, I use one password. Uh, and, you know, there are others that are equivalent. And I couldn't live without it. But that doesn't mean it's a good thing. It's a Band-Aid. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the system is so broken, we need these Band-Aids to function. Yeah. But we now have added two-factor authorization. Well, so here I was in, in the Netherlands. And I noticed that my, there seems to be a crack in my phone. The case seems to be bent coming off. So, okay, I'll simply have them glue it back again. And so we t- took it to a store in, in Delft, the Netherlands. And the store looked at it and said, no, it's a swollen battery. And we don't fix uh, Android phones. It's, it was a Google Nexus um, or Pixel. And uh, so you can't get it fixed and you better not use it because it could explode or catch fire. Oh, God. <laughs> so there I was for two weeks in, in Europe without my phone. Well, actually, most of my life was okay, except I couldn't do two-factor authorization. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So I, I could not. I got all sorts of requests from my, from my university to approve various things. I couldn't. Wow. So on and so forth. And so, and, and. Two-factor authorization is just another nuisance on top of everything else. I understand why it's there. And yeah. the system that I use is actually about as easy as you could imagine. Almost everybody uses it now. You get a number, you get a thing on your phone, and you just have to say, approve, and lo and behold, your computer. Now works. <laughs> That's very, I don't have to retype in a number and that sort of thing. But, um, but what are we going to do instead? That's the question. That's, that's a, Irish and um, voice recognition, none of those are perfect. They're, well, I, I could go into self-sovereign identity, which is one of the 
various things that are on the table now, but that's a very gigantic subject. Um, but that's but for the next episode. It's for the next episode. <laughs> One of the things I, I wanted to say about that, though, was that, and, and I guess maybe, I don't know if this is a measure of how vexing things are, can be, some things can be, uh, how intractable some problems can be, or just that we've missed the boat on it, which is that, yeah, I think if you told me anyway, in 1995, when the internet was first starting to take off, that we'd still be using um, logins and passwords 25 years later, I'd think it was crazy. I think that's, that's one, of, one of the earlier things that we would find a way not to require. And in a way, as you pointed out, it's now worse, you know. Um, but, but think about, because we require identity at this point. Yeah. It's not easy to find an alternative. And lots of people have thought about it and worked hard. I know. I, 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 I co-host a conference that's had 28, 28, I don't know, 30 now, of twice a year since 2005 on identity. It's not done. <laughs> so, I, In my opinion, biometrics is the best way but as you know, biometrics has its own failings. Right, right. And there's another thing that's a, that's a major problem, and that's people's names. Because name is, naming is a technology. And mm. uh, this is not the correct history, but I'll make it up anyway. <laughs> you know, in the early days, we had to sort of discriminate among the 10 people or maximum 50 who lived in groups. And so one name was enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then as or, or, or your name was Smith because you were the guy that did that, or it was, it was Farmer because that's what your job was, right? And, and then eventually we started to have two names or three, and sometimes the names were not to distinguish you, but to give a history of where you come from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they were never made to distinguish among a large number of people. And yeah. in today's world, uh, almost anybody's name is duplicated many, many times. So names are really bad identifier. Yeah. Uh, we don't have, but we, the cultural barriers to changing the name system is huge. In fact, oh, Scandinavia didn't have a second name for a long time. That's a fairly new development in Scandinavia. It's 100 or 150 years old. I know. I, I've, I've, I go, I'm half Scandinavian, and all the ancestors were named Anderson, and who knows, right? You know, no, the first one was named Anderson. named Anders, right? Anders. That was, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but actually, I now I've been watching a detective story in Iceland, and I discover it's not just Anderson; there's also Anderson daughter. Daughters, yeah, yeah. Um, well, there was a. And maybe you know about this. If, if you change your gender, do you have to change your name? Well, I, I don't know if you've run into this problem with real ID. Real ID is this new thing in California, and this is a living hell for women. I don't know if you've, well, you're not in California, Catherine, but, but Joyce has, you know, went by a, her maiden name and her prior married name. And, and it's, it's complete hell because now the banks require, uh, they knew her by one name or another name. And they literally require that on their records that she has to be a hyphenate for, for the sake, this, for the sake of the namespace in their computers. It can't, you can't lose a prior name or they lose their record. So she has to hyphenate it to her current surname, which she's had for over 30 years or something, you know, but it's, it's, it's crazy. And then to make it work with real ID, which isn't really in California, you know, it's crazy. Interesting. It's broken. Yeah. And by the what way, I'm, I'm called doc that is, that is neutral on all the variables. It, it isn't, it doesn't reflect gender. It doesn't reflect uh, yeah. heritage. It doesn't reflect all sorts of things, but it's just simply that 
And they do this in India, the Aadhaar system. Yeah, I've been there and, and, and witnessed it at work. And it's, it's full of problems, but it's also become standard, right? They did, they did manage to have a, a nationwide one point some billion person identity system. Uh, 1.3 billion at this point, yes. Yeah, I know. It, 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 the original idea, you may not realize, was that it was going to be simply identification. It had uh, 14 uh, biometrics, 10 fingers, uh, two eyes, and a photograph. That's 13, okay? Yeah. It simply said that you are the person that goes with this number. Yeah. It didn't have to have your name, didn't have to have anything else. And that was a whole scheme. Is that that was, I know. And we talked to one of the guys that founded it. And he said, originally, there were like four variables. One of them was a biometric, which included others. But, um, but then everybody started ladling on a whole bunch of other variables that they wanted to know about everybody. Here's the problem. It, it, first of all, to build a system like that, which is if you have 1.3 billion people register and, and you have 13 biometrics on each of those billion, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's, the it's permutation, a very sir. complex piece of software engineering. And it took, it took decades to get through, which meant they went through different parliaments and different prime ministers. Yeah. Yeah. And as a result in the political process, uh, people either hated it or they loved it. And they said, well, why don't we put this on it and that on it and that. Yeah. 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 But it still is the closest we have in the world, I believe, to an identification system that is, relatively neutral in the way it identifies you. So you, you could have many names and they, they should probably be part of your record because you may want to know that, that these names are the same identifier. But as long as you, you do the identification to the number, in theory, yeah, it solves a lot of these problems. It so should that's resolve. what the ought to be, something like that. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. once you have it that big, there's a temptation that when I'm in India, they're, they're yelling that there's a million frauds being created and there are people giving rocks on hard numbers. <laughs> given, but but the, the, the answer to that, by the way, is not to deny it, is to say, yeah, a million. But what is what fraction of 1.3 billion is 1 billion? It's really a tiny fraction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. It's, it's less than one-tenth of 1%, isn't it? Yeah. So, and, and it used to be that when the government, the government would spend hundreds of millions of dollars on social welfare, mm -hmm. and like 10% of it actually got to the people that it was intended for, the middle people. Oh. And nowadays they argue it's closer to 90% gets to the end. to the really, That's an interesting difference. Yeah. Wow. So, so Catherine, where do we stand on? on um, well, I, I mean, I don't, I certainly wouldn't want to keep done all night even though it's super tempting and thank you again for joining us i maybe maybe i'll ask a final question oh. okay. yeah. um so i think a lot of the people listening to this podcast they're they're geeks they're kind of like me they, they maybe make software or they engineer systems or you know, they're linux nerds or whatever whatever we all are um i wondered if you if you wanted to um i don't know share a call to action for for the geeks of the world uh, to my to maybe address uh, some design pet peeve what that might be 
or any anything that we might any problem we might solve what what would it be that, that you would ask us to do um <laughs> i know I, it's I, a loaded question pet peeves and they're all minor so i'm not going to worry about them oh well excellent um, that's a good the uh well i'll tell you where where i am thinking now mostly I'm taking uh, the United Nations 17 critical societal issues seriously. Actually, there are only 16 of them. Number 17 is the need to get different groups together and to collaborate <coughs> on solving the 16. Um, and they're the hard problems. There's a guy who likes hunger. It's education. Uh, it's transportation. It's uh, being treated equal, equality. Um, and they're all very hard and they're too big to work on. And so the rule is that basically the aid community of the world has worked on all of these 16 major problems for years. It spent billions and billions of problems of dollars, mostly to, to useless, wasted. And part of it is because uh, it's basically a superior mentality. It's, I, I, when I was in India, I gave this example the British came to India and they said, oh, you people are very backward and not educated and don't know how to run a government. Well, we know that. We're very good at that sort of stuff. So we'll help you. We'll run your government for you. And we'll tell you what's good and bad and we'll educate you in the proper way of education and so on. And you liked that, didn't you, Indians? <laughs> and yes, they loved it. That's why they have a Gandhi Museum in Ahmedabad because uh, he managed to overthrow that. Um, nobody likes an expert to come in and say what's what's the matter and what you should yeah. do. And, um, and this is what happens is we send in the world's experts who will analyze the problem. And they usually do a good job, they're experts, and they say, oh, water purity, that's a major problem. It's going to cost you $20 billion in 10 years to fix. And they may be right. But first of all, they're using Western technology, often in countries that can't really sustain it. And second of all, anything that's going to take a decade or more or, and cost billions of dollars immediately becomes a political issue. And everybody is fighting it. Because no matter how good this project is going to be, it's going to harm a lot of people along the way or, or displace them or whatever. And so there's a new, in fact, there's now a whole industry of people who write books about how bad all this is. Um, and one of the books I like, The Tyranny of Experts, points out the problem with experts is they're expert. And expert <laughs> knowledge is generalized knowledge. And so that means you give good advice, but you don't understand the culture and the abilities of the people you're talking to. And so what we've done is we're turning it on its end and we're saying, no, there are 7 billion people in the world and a lot of them are incredibly creative and they understand the issues they live in. We don't have to tell them what their problems are. They know what they are. And a lot of them are already working on solutions, but they are uneducated, many of them, and they don't, they're not able to do a big thing. They can do small things. And oftentimes what they do is they treat the, the symptoms as opposed to the underlying issues. So what the experts should be able to do, and that's what we're arguing, is we're gonna facilitate and mentor not, we're not going to preach to them. We're not going to tell them what they should do. We'll show them what other people have done or give them some principles that seem to apply. <clears throat> and then when someone does something, we want to be able to spread the word. And the world's best educational platform is YouTube. Mm. Or 
want to be a bit more correct, it's the internet. Yeah. And almost, it, I mean, nowadays I don't even, I just had problem with my computer this morning and I couldn't figure out what to do. And rather than try to find the manual, I just type it into the internet and there's an answer. Or we, we discover this interesting new food, I type it in the internet and there are 50 videos of people showing variations and how to make them. Or my faucet leaks, how do I fix it? Videos, almost anything, it's amazing. So that's what we want to do. But the internet, the YouTube especially, is not curated. You don't know which ones are worthy or which ones are not, or which is the best instructional one. There are too many. So we want to add a way of curating it so that you can find what you need. When it's open source, so that we find a way of getting water in Africa, and this person in India sees it and says, oh, that's very clever. Now, that doesn't work here, but I can modify it so it will work here where I live. Well, that modification is open source, goes back into the material. So that's what I'm trying to work on, trying to figure out how to do this. And That's um, great. That's a it, way better answer, I think, than my question even deserved. But <laughs> thank you. Well, because I'm saying, here's another way of looking at it. All right, Don, you're nearing the end of your life. Um, who knows how many more years? No more than two decades, certainly. Um, I'm 83, in case you wonder. Actually, yeah. given it's December, why don't I say I'm 84? Because my birthday is <laughs> only three weeks away. Oh, geez. Uh, my birthday's so, today. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're, I, we're both December kids. Okay. So um, I don't have that much time, and I want to do something worthwhile. And I, you know, I, I am well known for the work I've done, and I'm proud and happy of it, but they've been for the small things in life, and I want to work on the big things. But it's really hard. So I'm going to leave you with, with a depressing anecdote about global warming. Um, I'm a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and we have lectures on campus. And we invited Al Gore to come in and give a lecture. And he came last, this past uh, Tuesday night, I think it was. Hmm. And he gave a brilliant lecture. It really was fantastic. In fact, some of my friends went, they didn't want to go and other politicians are going to give a glib lecture. No, because in the audience, we had some of the world's authorities of climate change, mm. Institute of Oceanography. And, yeah. but, but Gore not only was this a great lecture, but he pointed out where the data came from. And sometimes he would point out people in the audience. This is, I learned from you. <laughs> That's a winning strategy. Yeah. No, but, but he, but, he had this ability. Uh, he, he clearly was on top of all the information as he went across the world and showed photographs and showed details. And he, he did three parts of the lecture. One is where we are, which is worse than we ever predicted. The scientists, no matter how gloomy they were, they were too optimistic. And so were worse. Second of all, what is happening today? And there he was starting to be optimistic. And first, and then finally, what can we do in the future? They tried to make it optimistic. Um, I'm not as optimistic as he was trying to be, but he did point out, for example, with electric generation, we're reaching the, the point now where it's cheaper to do solar panels and wind than uh, coal fired, fired and petroleum. Not all over the world, but in a huge percentage of the world. And he feels that in a few years, this will be true all over the world. And there are a bunch of other things that he felt. So in many ways, that's the best way of switching from petroleum. It isn't legislating against it. It's making it unprofitable. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
Well, anyway, after this wonderful lecture, then there was a question period afterwards with some really good questions. And I'm always, I always value, judge a person by not how good their lecture is, which is rehearsed, but how good they are at answering questions. Uh, he was really good. One of the questions was how much of this problem is caused by the capitalist and, and previously imperialist political systems. Mm. But I felt he gave a really intelligent, detailed answer to that, in which he yeah. said basically, yeah, that's the, that's the culprit. But it was more nuanced than that, with names, with history, with historical events, with books that people have written describing this, that, and the other. Anyway, afterwards, there's a reception for the small number of people who had invited him, et cetera. And it was at the Estancia Hotel. And uh, I went, so I'm at the Estancia Hotel, and the waiter is serving us his wonderful food. And he says, so tell me what was going on tonight. And so my wife and I told him. And he said, oh, yeah, this climate thing. You know, the world cycles up and down. We had ice ages and this, that, and the other. And then we had a meteor come. And so this is just another one of those normal types of cycles. And I tried to say, no, 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 this is different. And I tried to give some evidence. And this guy was actually a pretty intelligent waiter. He clearly understood, he knew a bit about the history, geological history. Uh, he was proud that his two daughters had gone to USD, UCSD and graduated in science areas and chemistry and, and biology, I think. And, um, but he, he would not, he just, there was no way. We, we were, we just come out of this wonderful, powerful lecture and we help yeah. people. And we Back just, to him. it was just, no, it's, Nothing you say, it's et cetera. And, but a lot of the issues that you and I are facing, Doc, and probably Catherine, is that it's, whether it comes to privacy and comes to the misuse of all sorts of a technology are not unlike that. That most yeah. people just don't get it. They don't see it. Yeah. Because a lot of it comes, it's sneaking up on you. It's, when something is very slow, you don't notice it. Right. In fact, one of the things I, I am one of the main frames of the way I talk about these issues, people are genetically disposed to find simple causal, simple causes for actions. There's a cause and, an, and a response. And the, usually the cause is pretty obvious and it's close to the response. And they don't, people have real trouble understanding feedback loops. Now a single feedback loop, like on a thermostat, we can kind of understand, but not when there are multiple ones and yeah. forward loops. And on top of that, some of them are nonlinear, and some of them, like in climate change, are not only nonlinear, but it may take a year or two before its impact is felt. Right, right. And that makes it really difficult to, to get a, an ordinary person to understand what we're trying to talk about. Yeah, I think that's not an uncommon right. reaction. And like you say, it's not an uncommon reaction when we discuss privacy. People say, well, where's the harm? We're all boiled frogs, as Doc likes to say. Yeah, it's hard to find the harm. I mean, all right, somebody breaks into my computer system. Why do I care? I don't have anything in there that I care about. Yeah. Well, actually, that turns out not to be true, but, but that was, that's, that's our first reaction, many yes. of us. But I think you did say something earlier and, and that I really enjoyed, and, and that's that you know, mentorship and open sourcing code and information and everything else is part of the answer. Yeah, yes, I believe it is. I well, believe that's a good that note. That it is. That's Was a good that, positive note <laughs> after yeah, the depressing conversation about. We should end on a positive note. I know. Yeah. I, I I can't tell you. I, I live in Houston, and 
it's really hard to deny the effects of uh, of our of the well, climate on our local weather. Flooding over and We're over basically and over again. destroyed every every other year, <laughs> and we have to rebuild the whole. City. It's not a good situation. I was just in Florence, and the waves were crashing against the bridges way up on the top of the arches. Yes. Wow! And Venice is basically uninhabitable. I know it's really it's really bad. It's really yeah. bad. Shame. And it's, you know, and, and the efforts they've made to save it are making it worse, apparently. I read a little bit about that because they've never done this before. They never, they never took a city that was built in pilings, uh, with rocks on pilings in the middle of a swamp a millennium ago and tried to save it from tides. The one that made it, the Dutch. They're pretty amazing. Yeah, they're pretty. They are facing a new challenge because they have to now cover another couple of feet of rise, or even, depending upon who you believe, could be even 10 or 20 feet of rise. Yeah, that's going to be... That's... Okay, but we, but we, we promised that we would have... <laughs> no, I know, right? Well, we could talk forever. It would be lovely. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much. I feel it was a privilege, and um, I think this will be a really well-received podcast. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Don. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Doc. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.